So what were you doing nine nights ago? It was New Year's Eve, and maybe with the rest of the world, you stayed up late at night, and as the clock struck midnight, you sang a Scottish song, and you let off a few fireworks, you danced with strangers, and yelled and screamed with excitement. Now, what's the point? Like, what's going on there? And what's going on is the belief, the hope, that the year that is coming will be better than the year that's gone. That's what gives us hope every new year. And by the way, I believe that. I look forward to every new year with the hope and the expectation that God will do something in the coming year that he was not doing in the last year. But some of you with a slightly more cynical aspect are looking at me and saying, really? The fact that the calendar changes numbers means things are going to be better. Like two years ago, as we were farewelling 2019, were you looking forward with excitement to 2020? It's, like, it's going to be like 2020. It's like it's a balanced number, 2020 vision. This is going to be the year of vision. It's going to be great. So how did 2020 go for you? Well, it was a tough year, wasn't it? 12 months on from that, as 2021 was approaching, probably in desperation, we're saying, surely 2021 has to be better than 2020. And was it? Like for so many people, there's been some really, really tough times. And so when some preacher stands up and says, I declare and I decree that 2022 will be the year of the Lord's favour, by the way, I actually believe that's true, but some of you, I'm just wondering, have you just given up? Because if there's no purpose for your future, there's no power for your present, and there's no sense in the life you're living. Seriously, the things that you're working on in your life right now, the stuff that you're doing, like, what's the point? The things that you're putting so much energy and time and, and, and hard work, money and sweat into, what is it that keeps you going? Because if there's no purpose for your future, there is no power for the present and there's no passion for living. And sometimes you're just thinking, I don't quite know why we do this. Because life can sometimes seem like you're just churning the same things over every day. And when we come to church, you're just churning the same things over every week. And it's almost like we're on a treadmill, we're running fast, but not getting anywhere. Here's the way it works. You study hard to sit the exam, to get the marks, to get a job. And then the relentless grind starts. You go to work to earn the money, to buy the food, to get the energy, to go to work, to buy... You, you understand how it just goes over and so many people are struggling because it just doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. There just doesn't seem to be a point for what we're doing. And you might almost think, like, in the universe, I'm just so insignificant. I just, I just don't matter in this whole thing. Now, I know from God's word that is not true. You are not some accident. You are not some tiny cog in a cosmic machine that when God handcrafted and designed and created you, he built into you a God-given purpose and a God-given passion. And I know from the scriptures that that is true. 
Now, wouldn't it be brilliant if tonight, as we open the Bible, that God would rekindle within you that God-given purpose and that he would bring into flame your God-given passion? Come on, you up for this? Okay, grab your Bibles. We are going to John chapter 2 to look at an incident in Jesus' life where we'll see the passion of God's glory revealed. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, we're going to look at this in four different scenes. And scene one I've called the problem with worship. John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand that Passover is a big, big deal for God's Old Testament people. It's sort of like the Olympics and the African Cup of Nations and the Passion Conference all rolled into one. It was huge. Two and a half million people would pour into the city of Jerusalem because they were going to remember the time where God showed his glory by rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. They would recall the time where the angel of death passed over the faithful people because they had the blood of the sacrificial lamb over their doorposts and God pulled off the most amazing rescue act that had ever happened in history as he showed his glory as his people were rescued from being slaves in Egypt. That was Passover. And of course the center for all this in Jerusalem is the temple. Now, here's our problem. When we think of the temple, we think of something like our church, but maybe a little bit bigger. Can I suggest it is nothing like that? The temple is more like Cape Town Stadium. There's, there's some buildings there, but it's a huge enclosed outdoor space. And I just want you to understand the size of this temple and how it dominated the city. So in the Museum of Jerusalem, they've built a scale model of what Jerusalem looked like in Jesus' time. You can just check out this photo, and I just want you to see what it actually looked like. Look, there we are. Now, you can see the amphitheater there, yes? Give you an idea of scale. You can see it's three stories high. Yep, you see that? Okay. That gives you an idea of scale. That's how big the amphitheater is. Let's pan back and see the temple. By the way, can you spot the amphitheater still? It's just that little tiny building down there. Do you see how huge the temple is? It absolutely dominated the city. It was the most magnificent building in the ancient world that had ever been constructed. And this was the place where God's glory was to be seen as God's people brought their animal sacrifices and showed how holy God was and how they would sacrifice their best animals in an act of sacrificial worship. That was the system. And even the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who of course could not enter the temple because they were unclean, there was a court of the Gentiles around the outside that through the balustrades they could peek through and see the glory of God being demonstrated by the Jewish sacrificial system. And if you knew nothing else about God and you saw the animal sacrifices, you would know two things for sure, that number one, God is holy, and number two, sin is ugly. 
And that's the celebration that was happening at Passover. So what does Jesus find when he enters the temple? Verse 14, John 2, 14. In the temple courts, he found people um, selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, there was always a market outside the temple because not everybody was a farmer. Not everyone could bring their prize um, sheep or cow to sacrifice. And so all the city folk, they would go down the market and sacrifice their money as they purchased the best animal they could and then they could see God glorified as they brought that animal for sacrifice. But the high priests were pretty sharp people. Like, they were pretty cluey, and they thought, let's move the marketplace into the temple surrounds, because then we can charge people whatever we like. You know when you go to something and you want a snack, you know you're at the stadium or you're at the, the cinema, You've got to buy the snacks that they sell at whatever price they sell it at. And they thought they inflated the price of the sacrifice because let's make church a money-making issue. And of course, you couldn't bring Roman money into the temple because Roman money had an image of the emperor on it. And they said that's a graven image and you can't bring Roman money into the temple and so they set up money changes where you could change your filthy Roman money for holy temple money. Now, if you've ever been overseas and you've had to go to the money changes, you know they take a little commission for themselves. And you've got to accept whatever rate they're giving you. Um, and so the high priests were making money twice, once with the overpriced animals and a second time with a terrible exchange rate on the money. And here's... Here's the sadness of it. The poor man who brought his copper coin to buy the smallest sacrifice, which would have been a sparrow, now his copper coin does not buy a sparrow and he could not sacrifice to his God and he could not see the glory of God and they would go home uh, dismayed, discouraged. Now, you've got to understand that the place they put the market was in the court of the Gentiles. A quick overview of the layout of the temple. You see, I don't know if you can read it. Right in the middle is where the priests are, the Holy of Holies. Then there's the court of Israel, which is where <coughs> the Jewish men would gather. Then you'll see the court of the women, just below that. Now, do you see the outside areas? That's court of the Gentiles. And there's a balustrade, a fence, which keeps the Gentiles out in that outer area. And they had put the market in the court of the Gentiles, which means the outsiders who wanted to come and see God being glorified in the sacrifices of his people could no longer see the glory of God. And you've got to understand there is no other issue that gets to Jesus like this one. Come on, half of Israel was in poverty. There was slavery around everywhere, all sorts of inequalities and all sorts of bad treatment, but there is no other issue which gets to Jesus like this one when he sees God's glory being ripped out of the temple and the outsiders never even getting a glimpse of the glory of God in the sacrificial system. So, scene two. Jesus is consumed for God's glory. Verse 15. 
so Jesus made a whip out of cords. Now, you've probably heard this story so many times that you're thinking that's an entirely normal thing for someone to do when they come to church. There is Jesus in the temple, and he's picking up loose bits of cord and, and loose bits of string, and he's starting to weave them together meticulously, taking ages to do this. Imagine you're one of his disciples, and just standing there watching him. Uh, what's Jesus doing? Uh, I think he's making a whip. Jesus, no. Come on, we've been out in the regions. We've been out in the rural churches. We're now in the capital city. This is going to be our moment of glory. This is where we'll see the world transformed. We want these people to like us. Jesus, you're not going to do anything that would upset people, are you? Verse 15, read it again. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, the Jesus movies throughout the decades have not served us well. Normally in the Jesus movies, you see Jesus, there's a couple of cows in the background, there's a table or two with money, he gets a whip out and he turns a table or two, a couple of cows moo as they run across, and there's Jesus dancing about saying, come on, get out, get out. It was nothing like that. Do you see what it says here? The Bible says there in verse 16, Just checking, was it 15 or 16? He drives them all out. Do you see the word all there? He drives them all out. Now, I looked up the Greek word, which is translated all, and here's what it really means. All. He drove them all out. Now, how many people might there have been there. The court of the Gentiles was 350 meters around. It could fit between five and 25,000 people in there. Let's just go down the middle and just say there's probably 15,000 people and the Bible says he drove them all out. And if you're thinking that's no big deal, you, you try it sometime. Pick a Sunday when the Springboks are playing down at Cape Town Stadium and with COVID restrictions, there's, there's 15,000 people there. And you go down outraged. They're playing sport on the Lord's Day. You go out on the field with your little whip and you tell everybody to get out. Get out! Get out! You know, Mr. and Mrs. Kafoops are up in the stands saying, oh my goodness, we've got to get out. It's, it's serious. He's got a whip. Oh my goodness, let's run to the exits. Seriously, you are not going to clear 15,000 people out of that stadium. And yet with a word, when God shows his anger... People flee without a question. He shows the righteous anger of God. Now, what is it that provokes this righteous anger? Scene three. One of the heroes of the Jewish faith, King David, was consumed for God's glory. Because in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
The New Living Translation puts it this way. Passion for God's house burns within me. And they recognized that verse because they'd done their memory verses when they were younger. And they're thinking, that's Psalm 69. Now, who wrote Psalm 69? It was King David himself. Was he a man who was passionate for the glory of God? Do you remember the scene with Goliath? On one side, all of Israel's army, maybe 30,000 fighting men, there to defend the honor of God's glory and the might of his name. And on the other side, there stands one man, one man, Goliath. And day in, day out, he blasphemes the God of the armies of Israel and standing scared with their knees knocking is maybe 30,000 men specifically trained for the one task of giving honor to the name of God by defending the, the kingdom of Israel. Nobody is moving. And then along comes David. Maybe 14 or 15 years old, grade 8, grade 9 at school. He's not big enough to be a soldier. He's just come up to bring some lunch for his big brothers. The Bible says he brings up bread and cheese. David is the original cheese boy. <laughs> and David simply sees what's happening and says, How dare... You defy the armies of the living God. Now, he knows nothing about fighting, but he's consumed with a passion that God's glory will be seen in the nation of Israel. And he's determined that nothing and no one is going to take away from the glory of God, which is to be revealed. Come on, why does David take Goliath on? Because he was obsessed with his own little physique? Because he just wanted to show, eh, the little guy wins, you know. No, he took on Goliath because he is consumed with a passion for God's glory. And I just want to check with you, are you also consumed with a passion for God's glory? And as we start this year, is that what your heart is set on? Scene four, Jesus, glory even to death. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove you have the authority to do all this? Come on, Jesus, show us a trick. Do a miracle. Do something. We want to know how, how come you've got this power and authority from God. We don't even know you've got this power and authority. Come on, do us a trick. Can you see this is one of the silliest questions that Jesus is ever asked? Because have a look at where they ask it. They are outside the temple walls and they're saying, Jesus, what can you do to show us you've got this power from God? Come on, all 15,000 of us want to know. Jesus has already displayed God's power and authority. He has already acted for God's glory and they have completely missed it. Verse 19. So Jesus answered them, We'll destroy this temple. I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It has taken 46 long years to build this temple, but you're going to raise it in three days. And John adds, But the temple he had spoken of was that of his body. 
Oh, Jesus is saying to these people, you have already destroyed God's temple with your false worship. And one day you'll destroy this temple, that is Jesus' own body. But he will be crucified and strung out like a criminal and yet he will show God's glory three days later when he rises from the dead. And as Jesus dies on that cross, takes our sin, pays our punishment, conquers sin, conquers the devil, and then conquers death as he rises, that is the moment where God's glory is shown to its fullest, that God's justice is seen, God's love is seen, God's rescue is seen, and that's what happened. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, that glory that was in Jesus at that time by God's spirit God plants that into your life so that you can live the rest of your days for God's glory as well let me just bring this in to land there is a God who is passionate about you See, the whole reason that the Father sent the Son was to fight for you. Jesus' passion was his Father would be glorified as he dies on that cross and he rises again to set your heart on fire for eternity. Even as Jesus is hanging on that cross, the crowds are taunting him and saying, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. Jump off that cross and we'll believe you. And at that moment, Jesus had a decision to make. He could decide to save his own life or he could decide to save your life. And at that point, he glorified his Father by sacrificing himself that we might be forgiven and that we might be set for eternity. It's like as he hangs there on the cross, Jesus is looking at you and saying, I would rather die than spend eternity without you. There is a God who shows his passion for you by fighting for you. And he does that so that you can go out and fight for other people, to bring them to Jesus, to protect the vulnerable, to bring justice to work against cruelty, to work against oppression, that God might be glorified as you show the heart of Jesus. That's the passion that brought Karen and me to Africa six and a bit years ago. And that is the same passion that God wants you to live with as you face 2022. Because Jesus put everything on the line for you. He's calling you to put everything on the line for him if Jesus has fought and died for you who is he now calling you to that this year you will stand up for them you will protect them you will right the injustices you will bring them out of darkness who is now God calling you to that you might fight and yet even die for I love the words that were uttered by William Booth. He lived in London in the late 1800s, and he saw that only the nice people were coming to church. But the people out on the streets, the homeless, the unemployed, 
The pickpockets, the thieves, the prostitutes, the unwed mothers, the orphans, the pickpockets, they didn't go anywhere near church and nobody at church wanted them and moved to have the same passion that Jesus has. He decided if those people won't come to church, we will take church to them. And he got the holy, sacred Christian hymns and put them to a pub band, which in those days was a brass band. You know, the bottom of the, the, bottom of the level of bands, and still is. Um, and they sang the Christian music out on the streets. They marched down, preached on the street corners, and they fed people, and they provided, uh, they housed the homeless people. They cared for the people that nobody else cared for. And someone asked him, why do you keep doing this? Why don't you just settle back in church where it's nice and comfortable? Why are you out on the streets? This is what William Booth said. While women weep, as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, like they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, and I'll fight to the very end. That is Jesus' passion for you, that he will fight for you to the very end. Jesus' purpose and passion was that as he does that, he will bring glory to God, his Father. And I just want to ask you, what about you? Bringing glory to God. This year, bringing glory to God, is that what you will live for? Bringing glory to God, is that what you would die for?